Oscar Wilde, not somebody I normally quote, popularized the proverb that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery that mediocrity can pay to greatness. Of course, he would say that. Which meant it was a compliment when someone tried to imitate you. We are, in fact, imitative creatures, what Rene Girard calls mimetic. Monkey see, monkey do. Uh, this is cute when our children, uh, pay, they play act house, you know, and they, they want to be dad and they do what you do. They go off to do your job and they want to play mom and they want to do what mom does. And they, they uh, use your mannerisms and your uh, colloquial expressions that are known only to your family and and it's cute and endearing. And then they grow up and they, they not only imitate your good qualities, but they imitate your sin, do they not? And then they get angry and they explode in anger and you look at them and you say, that is a spitting image of me. And then it's not so cute. <laughs> so you see, by watching you, they have come to resemble you. And this uncovers a deep metaphysical reality built into the fabric of God's creation. We were made in the image and likeness of God, the imago Dei. We are designed to reflect God's moral attributes of righteousness, knowledge, holiness, justice, love, faithfulness, integrity, but most of all to reflect God's glory. But when Adam sinned, that all changed. You see, to reflect God's glory required that you be in God's presence and attend to Him through a close communion relationship of love, gratitude, and devotion, all which are indicative of worship. Sin separates us from God, cutting us off from that close relationship and the ability to behold His glory. And it wouldn't take long for man to look for other things to take the place of God. Since sin did not extinguish the image of God in man, we still have a natural desire to worship. Only sin distorts this desire, turning it in on the self. As Augustine said, we are curved in on ourselves. And in Romans, Paul said that man exchanged the glory of a mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You see, idolatry is creating a God and worshipping it as if it is your creator. But Scripture teaches us something interesting about what happens to man when he turns from worshiping God to worshiping idols. You see, what you worship, you become like. One theologian puts it this way, We resemble what we revere, either for ruin or restoration. We resemble what we revere, either for ruin or restoration restoration. Now we're going to look this morning at Psalm 115 to see this principle displayed and then tease out some implications both 
in our cultural idolatries, but also in how we can turn from them by reorientating ourselves away from the self back to God. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 115. There are pew Bibles also in the seats in front of you, or you can listen. Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious and almighty God and Father, we come this morning into your presence to worship you. But ultimately, we come to behold your glory. And may we be changed by seeing you. May we, as we worship you, become like you in righteousness, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. For we pray this in Jesus' name. And amen. This is sort of a continuation of my sermon last week in that we're still addressing the state of the church in 2023, but the Lord is funny in His providence because I had something totally different in mind when I began to open up this text, and the Lord directed me where I did not expect to go. So I do apologize uh, because last week we, I said I was going to go somewhere, and I'm not going there. <laughs> so... Uh, The psalmist here is, uh, I'm only going to focus really on verses 4 through 8, and primarily on verse 8. You see, the psalmist is urging the people of God to worship God alone and to trust in Him only. He distinguishes this from what the nations do, uh, who mock Israel because they have no image that reflects their God. For Yahweh dwells in the heavens and is sovereign over all. And the reason Israel should remain faithful to worship him only, in the midst of this, that 
uh, declaration, that exhortation to trust in the Lord and worship Him only, the psalmist gives us a theology of idolatry by exposing the practices of the nations, which Israel was constantly being tempted to imitate by introducing their own idolatry into the worship of the Lord. Now, as I said, I'm going to focus on verses 4 through 8, and especially on verse 8. You see, the psalmist is at pains to show that an idol is a human creation. In the ancient world, idols were crafted from silver and gold, or if they were very large, they were made of wood and then overlaid with silver or gold or any precious metal. And man may put all of his artifice into crafting a well-made image, one even with a mouth and eyes, with ears and nose and hands and feet. But despite how lifelike it may look and how much life we may invest in them, they remain lifeless. They cannot speak. They cannot see. They cannot hear or smell or feel or walk. They are nothing. An idol is something we create and then worship in the place of our Creator. Just think about that for a moment. We make it. It's our creation. And then we worship it as if it is our Creator. Now, going back to what we talked about last week, that's what we call absurdity. And it's fairly ridiculous. An idol is man's attempt to create their own God, an attempt, of course, to blur the distinction between God and man. The Lord, on the other hand, He creates man out of nothing. And then He, he makes him in His image and he, likeness, and He breathes life into him. He makes man out of the dust with hands and feet with a mouth and a nose and eyes and ears. And then he breathes life into him. Man, on the other hand, creates an image in his likeness. But we cannot breathe life into it. Why do we do this? Why do we make idols? And before I get to, the, to the make a case that we do make idols, even if we don't make them of wood and stone and gold and silver... Why is the desire to make something that is our own creation and then turn and worship it? Well, we do this because it's easier. It's easier to have a God that we made. There's no mystery there. There's no transcendence and we remain in control. Now, we may prescribe duties we may make an idol and say, uh, this idol wants us to do this and this and this. And if we will please this idol, we have to do this. But even that, even the duties are man-made. We prescribe them. Many of us would much rather that we get to write the rule book than that somebody imposes a law upon us. It's a way that we can try to bring God down to our level, a level where we can control. Luther, in his larger catechism, said this as he commented on the first commandment. That is, thou shalt have uh, or worship me alone as thy God. What is the force of this and how is it to be understood? What does it mean to have a God? Or what is God? 
Answer, a God means that from which we are to expect all good and to which we are to take refuge in all distress, so that to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe Him from the whole heart, as I've often said that the confidence and faith of the heart alone make both God and an idol. Thus it is with all idolatry, for it consists not merely in erecting an image and worshiping it, but rather in the heart, which stands gaping at something else, and it seeks help and consolation from creatures, saints, or devils, and and neither cares for God nor looks to Him for so much good as to believe that He is willing to help. Neither believes that whatever good it experiences comes from God. See, the difference between the worship of God and the worship of an idol is just direction. Where are you facing? Who are you orientated to? The difference between God and an idol, the difference between uh, us becoming like God or becoming like an idol comes down to worship. Even more simply, G.K. Beale in his biblical theology of idolatry defines it this way. The idol is whatever claims the loyalty that belongs to God alone. Calvin says that our hearts are idol factories, constantly fashioning new idols for us to worship. We then attempt to breathe life into our idols by treating them as our functional saviors. But that we do that, that we make idols, that we're prone to making idols, that we have other things that we have crafted, that we have made in our life that we will worship, that's not the most disturbing thing about this text. Rather, the most disturbing thing about idolatry is that when we do this, when we worship idols, we start to become like them. See, notice in verse 8. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. What you worship, you become like. When we turn away from worshiping the true and the living God, we soon become like the things that draw our attention. Things we love and are devoted to. What is it that we become? What are you becoming? Remember that we are living creatures made in the image of God. As living creatures, we have the God-given use of our faculties, our senses. We can see, we can hear, we can smell, we can taste, we can walk, we can inhabit a world that God has charged with His glory and grandeur everywhere. All which we take in through our senses. And all of which directs our attention back to God. But in idolatry, we lose our senses and become like the idols we worship. Nothing. In a very real sense, we lose our humanity. And this in turn becomes a vicious cycle for in in turning away from God, we lose the ability to perceive God, to attend to Him. That is to worship Him. And as we move away from worshiping Him, we lose our sense of Him more and more and more. The principle that Scripture teaches us concerning idolatry lies in this. What you worship, you become like. 
Worshiping God is to be rightly orientated to Him as our God. He is your creator. And you are directing your attention to Him. We maintain this through proper orientation of recognizing that we are not God. He alone is God. We are His creation. Another way of putting this is what you are orientated towards, that is what you attend to, what you pay attention to the most, that is what you love or what you treasure. And Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What you treasure the most, you come to resemble for ruin or restoration. Everyone knows that dragons love treasure. Everyone that is except Eustace Scrubs. Scrub. Who, of course, had not read the right sort of books to know such things. C.S. Lewis in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he gives us a stunning picture of what desire can turn you into. Eustace, having wandered away from the beach and down into this trench, and he sees a cave and he sees some smoke coming out of it and, and he's looking at it and he's not sure what's going on. And then he's startled because all of a sudden a dragon comes out of the cave and it doesn't seem to notice him. And it goes to a pond and it takes a drink and it suddenly dies. And Eustace is relieved because he thought the dragon was going to kill him. And so he goes and he makes sure the dragon is dead. And then, of course, being curious, he goes into the dragon's cave and he finally realizes that what the dragon was hoarding was treasure. And he begins to think of himself, if I can just take some of this treasure, I can become great. Even here, I can become great. And so he puts on two bracelets and they're, they're too big for his arms, so he puts them all the way up his arms and he puts some diamonds in his pocket. And then, of course... He feels sleepy, so he falls asleep. Spoiler alert. This is written like in the 60s, so if you haven't read it, you probably should have. So I'm going to tell you what happens. When he awakes, he discovers he has turned into a dragon. And C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says this, quote, He had turned into a dragon while he was asleep, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy Dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. Eustace' greed and covetousness made him bestial, unable even to speak. And Lewis portrayed well what Scripture teaches of those God gives over to their deepest desires. You want idols? Fine! You will be just like them, blind and deaf and dumb and mute. You will be nothing, and you will lose your senses. And if that doesn't describe our current cultural moment, I don't know what does. The propensity to make idols and worship them is not isolated to some, but is the natural state of all until or unless the Lord calls them to salvation, until you are born again, until God takes away your heart of unbelief, you will constantly make idols of one thing after another and look to them to provide salvation that only God can provide. Until the Lord calls and saves you, 
your natural state is to worship anything but God. But what happens when God saves you? When He calls you and He gives you a new heart? Do Christians still create idols and worship them? And the answer is the same as it is for our relationship with sin. When God saves you, He radically forgives all of your sin. Not just the sins of your past, not just the sins of your present, but also the sins of your future. All of them. As the hymn writer says, not in part, but the whole. Christ paid for them. And not only did He pay the penalty for the guilt of your sin, but He also broke the power of sin over you. You see, you used to not be able to do anything other than sin. But God broke that power as we read in Romans 6. You're, six, you're no longer enslaved to sin as your master. Instead, you're set free and you're able not to sin. So that once you are unable not to sin, He enables you by His Spirit to overcome sin. And this doesn't mean you will never sin again. It means that your relationship to sin is different. You're no longer sin's slave. The same can be said of idolatry. When God gives you a new heart, He restores your senses so that you're no longer blind, deaf, and dumb. He opens your eyes to see Him, to behold Him, to attend to Him, to worship Him. But although we are freed from sin's dominion over us, we still wrestle against desire to sin. The same can be said for idolatry. We still wrestle against the desire to worship other things, to put functional saviors in the place of worship that God alone rightly deserves. And the interesting and and at times frustrating thing about our ongoing Christian discipleship is the fact that God doesn't just transfer us directly into heaven. He leaves us where we are. He left Israel in the land of Canaan, in the, surrounded by idolatry all around them. He didn't remove all of that. And it's the same with us. How... They were faced with the same cultural pressure that you and I face to adopt the world's current worship practices or at least to integrate them in. If anything, we have it a little more difficult. First, because our culture does not call what it does worship. And second, modern secular idolatry does not take the same form of silver and gold the work of human hands. It makes it easier to integrate into the church because, of course, we're not going to have a statue in here and worship that. So we must be free from idolatry. Not exactly. Like the, the story of the older fish that's swimming by the two young fish. And he says to the young fish, Morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish kind of swim on and then they look at each other and they say, what the heck is water? But they don't know that they're swimming because they're just swimming. They're just fish. They're made in the water. We live in the midst of a secular culture and we are swimming in it. And we don't even recognize it at times. 
And it's hard for us to pull ourselves out of it. Now, secularism has its own pantheon of gods. There are not just one that we could say is the dominant idol, except at the very center of many of them, there seems to be one that does give life to all the rest, and that is the self, the self at the center. And I I don't mean the common sense way of speaking about the self, say, in distinction from some other self. I'm Taylor Bradley, and I know that I'm not Dave Brock. I'm myself, and he is himself. I'm not talking about that common sense way of thinking about the self. I'm talking about self in terms of where the real me is located. The authentic me. Where is it to be found? To better understand this, Carl Truman, a historian and a theologian, he uses a question. What is the purpose of education? What is education for? To kind of get at this idea of what the self is. He says, quote, Does education consist in training me in the demands and expectations of the wider culture, forming me, shaping me into that which will serve the community at large? Is growing up a process by which I learn to control my feelings, to act with restraint and and sacrifice my desire to those of the community around me? Or... Am I to understand myself as born free and able to create my own identity? Does education consist in enabling me to express outwardly that which I feel inwardly? Is growing up a process not of learning restraint, but rather of capitalizing on opportunities to perform? End quote. See, the basic distinction between the self derived from within me Versus the self that is to conform itself to reality, God's reality, is fundamentally what drives the conflict the church has with our secular culture. For those two definitions of the self are not compatible. Either God has made you for a purpose, and your purpose is to conform to His will, or... You are a blank slate and you get to write your own purpose and impose that on the world. It can't be both. It can only be one. But this definition of the self has also seeped into the church. Largely because we occupy the same social imaginary which bubbles up from the stories that we hear in the culture around us. The images The movies that we watch, the media that we consume are all telling us this story. They're telling telling you that in order for you to live a truly happy and authentic life, you must be what is inside of you. You must be true to those inner feelings. Very Rousseauian. Everyone is a blank slate. And it's, it's the culture around us that is trying to press you into its mold and you have to fight against that. So unless you've been living under a rock for the past 500 years, you have been affected by this, de- de- uh, this definition of the self. Materialism, egalitarianism, feminism, consumerism, Marxism, 
all of these have subtly influenced the way that we imagine the world to be. And at the center of all of those is a different definition of the self. To give a short example, take our ability to reduce church to another consumer good that should cater to our individual desires. Kennedy asked, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you could do for your country. That is so foreign now. We don't ask that of any institution. We don't ask that of anybody. Little did he know that the dam of expressive individualism had already broke. We approach church like we're shopping, imposing our personal taste, our whims, our desires. I like hymns. I like contemporary songs. I like praise choruses. I'm more moved by lots of liturgy and forms. I want to seem like it's all spontaneously happening. I think the sermon should make me feel good when I leave. I want the sermon to make me feel bad when I'm done. I like the coffee at that church. I need programs. If the church doesn't have a class on underwater basket weaving for 40-somethings, is it really a church? Rarely does the thought enter our minds to wonder what pleases God Or how am I approaching worship? What is my heart attitude? My thoughts and my intentions? It's not that some of these things aren't important. They are. Or that there's no such thing as personal taste. There is. Or that our church shouldn't reflect the culture that we live in. In some way. It should. But if that is not not half as important as your heart and the direction it takes in worship. Can a building become an idol? Yes. Can the liturgy become an idol? Yes, and it has. Just take a look to the east or to Rome. Can doctrine become an idol? Yes, and we're very good at that. Can our musical offerings become an idol? Yes, from Bethel to Bach. But guess what cannot become an idol? The Lord Jesus Christ That is who we are supposed to be facing towards. He is the proper object of our devotion and the right orientation of our hearts. If you can go to worship and not come away thinking of Him, not come away having seen Him, having heard His voice, having lifted your hearts to Him in prayer and praise and offered your very life to Him in confession and the giving of your gifts, then what has it all been for? If worship is a time for you to center yourself or get good vibes or learn how to have your best life now, or to enable you to feel good about your life choices, then my friends, you are worshiping an idol, and its name is self. How then do we live? How are we to make our way in this world to be in the world, but not of it? How are we to keep the world from seeping into our lives and corrupting even our church? The answer is the same answer that got us into the problem to begin with. Worship. It all comes down to worship. Not will you worship, but who will you worship? Paul, in my favorite chapters in the whole Bible, 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, he says this in verse 16. 
But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Your senses are restored. And you can see Jesus when you come to the Lord. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul maintains that when we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we are transformed so that we begin to resemble Him. Just as the idol worshiper becomes like the idols they worship, so too when we behold the glory of God, we become like Jesus. The process of sanctification happens when we worship God. And the worship happens when our lives are orientated towards the Lord, when in love and trust we obey Him. Which brings us back full circle to the point of this psalm, which is summed up in verses 9-11. through O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Brothers and sisters, in Christ it is in vain to put your trust in idols. They cannot save you, and when you worship them, you become like them, senseless. Trust in the Lord, worship Him, and in the process He will transform you from one degree of glory to another until at last you image Him perfectly. And then you will see Him, for you will be like Him. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come. But until then, keep your eyes and your heart fixed on Christ. With Paul, I say, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not the things that are on the earth. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so prone to worship things that we have made, chiefly to worship ourselves. Father, turn us from the worship of idols to see the glory, your glory shining in Jesus' face and change us to be like him in knowledge, righteousness, holiness, goodness, justice, and truth. May we come to resemble that which we worship, and turn our hearts to worship only you. For it is you alone we trust. It is you alone who are our shield and our very present help. We ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. You see,